Hello and welcome to Page Parlay. This is the show where we speak to authors or experts on creative writing. Today we're speaking to Lillianne Milgram. Laurie Jean, The Secret Life of the World's Most Erotic Masterpiece Prologue, The Copyist Paris, Winter 2011, The Orsay Museum It stopped me dead in my tracks. Granted, I was in Paris, but nonetheless, this wasn't something you'd expect to see in one of the most celebrated museums in the world. Prominently displayed on its own dedicated wall and hanging at eye level was a realistically rendered, X-rated, peep-show perspective of a woman's exposed genitals. Not a fig leaf in sight. The parted thighs drew my eye towards the riotous pubic bush just left of dead centre. The vulva was split asunder by a palette knife slash of scarlet. A shadowed ravine divided the buttocks into two creamy rounded orbs, and only a single breast, crested by a blush-coloured nipple, peeked out from beneath rumpled sheets. No face, no legs, no arms. Just lady bits. The painting is highly realistic. At first glance, it's almost like a photograph. I felt shy and like I should look away. Consent jumps to mind, wondering if she's comfortable with me viewing her like this. My eyes gravitate to her vulva, as I'm sure was intended by the composition. It's almost relieving to see pubic hair. It makes everything seem less vulnerable. She's in a very trusting pose. It's a bit like seeing a cat roll on its back, knowing that it's a signal that they aren't afraid of you. You can see veins through the skin, stretch marks and creases. It feels honest. And that is part of what makes her beautiful. The confidence she seems to be displaying. At first I focus on the pelvis, but eventually I look up and realise that one of her breasts was also exposed. Strangely, it almost made the picture look more relaxed. It didn't appear posed, even though it must have been. Everything about the picture was a choice, made by the artist and potentially the model as well. But the breast wasn't angled to look its best. It was just there. In a way, the whole picture didn't feel erotic. It felt more like I'd walked in on someone waking up in the morning. Someone who was comfortable with their own nudity and didn't mind that I was there. I could almost imagine offering them a coffee. Not erotic but definitely intimate. The painting imposes this closeness. I found myself wishing that I could talk to her. My name's Lillian Milgram. I am an artist and now an author, which was a surprise to me, let me tell you. (laughs) I was born in France. I grew up in Australia. I've lived in Israel. I've lived uh, in America now for quite a few years. And so I consider myself a a global artist or a wandering artist. My passion has always been art or anything related to art. So I live and breathe it and I read about it. I write about it. And that's pretty much been my life. And I still have the same passion, fortunately. Did you always feel like you wanted to travel a lot? Was that something you wanted or did that knowledge come to you slowly? I always have had the travel bug and I don't know if it's because When we uh, left France, I was a child and we came to Australia and I never felt 100% comfortable 
it never felt like my home. And so even at a young age, I was like always dreaming of when I could sort of leave and travel the world. And that has never stopped either. So I just love to travel. And also I find that whenever I travel, that does inspire me in, in a lot of creative ways. It just there's something about travel that just brings me into new ideas for my art or even for my writing. Travel just does that, I think. We're here specifically to talk about your novel and your relationship with a very particular piece of artwork. So would you mind telling us a little bit more about your relationship with the origin of the world? So the painting in question is L'Origine du Monde, The Origin of the World by Gustave Courbet, painted in 1866. So this is a painting that hangs permanently in the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. My particular very, very intimate and very personal uh, relationship with this painting began when I was in France, in Paris, actually, on an artist residency. And I went to the museum on the second day of my residency just to get inspiration and to look around because when you see other artists work, it inevitably triggers something. I've spoken to many artists and they all agree that that's what happens. And I saw the painting there, a very, very shocking and unexpected painting to see on a wall of such a venerable museum. And I just was uh, almost like stunned. I just stood there looking at it, at its beauty, at its audacity. And I walked around the museum. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I have to interject here that the prologue of my book is actually my adventures after seeing this painting, my preliminary sort of response to it, my very, very guttural impression of it, and then what happened and how I went on a journey with this painting and sort of uh, just went along with it for six weeks. I became its copyist, officially authorized by the museum. And so I got to know this painting very, very intimately from an artist's perspective, but also a much broader perspective from speaking to all the museum visitors that passed by and had a chat with me about this painting. That's wonderful. And it is, as you say, an incredibly striking piece of work. I'm, I'm not surprised that this became such a big part of your artistic life and your career. So would you mind telling us a little bit about the artist that originally created the work? I'd love to because I'm totally in love with him. (laughs) Too bad he was born a few centuries ago. But (laughs) his name is Gustave Coupe. He was a French painter of the realist movement in the 19th century. Now, having said that, that could sound almost like, oh, la-di-da, boring or something like that. But if you knew the actual personage, uh, you would think he would not be someone that you could easily forget. And I did a lot of research. And I found out that this man, this artist, was principled and passionate in a way that you rarely meet. He founded the realist movement in which he just defied all convention. He did not want to paint, you know, uh, religious figures or um, he didn't want to paint genre paintings. He wanted to paint what he saw with his own eyes. And he's famously known to have said, show me an angel and I'll paint it because he just wanted to paint whatever he saw. He did not want to paint what was the convention of the time. He was fiercely independent. He almost like made it a point to go against any convention because that was what he, what he did. He, was, he just wanted to go his own way. 
And he was also um, very influential in the postmodern uh, movements. Like he paved the way for artists to paint what they wanted, to paint what they saw. But his principles in class blurring, you know, he hated the class boundaries of the time, but he also was a revolutionary in his own right. He was a member of the commune, the French commune in 1871, and he was... Um, jailed and exiled because of his beliefs. So he's just an absolutely dynamic and very, very important person in the history of art and a fantastic painter, a very, very um, unforgettable character, you know, charming. And also he called himself the most arrogant man in France. <laughs> I think that tells us a lot about him. Oh, thank yes. you. Oh, he does sound absolutely incredible. From your the knowledge of this artist that you became interested in, this piece that became such a huge part of your life, what was it that led to that further step of writing about the origin of the world? Well, like you said before, it's, it's very hard not to have a very strong opinion about this painting. But what it did to me was it, it just bewitched me, just from the point of view of its visual, being an artist. So first of all, the first step for me was a visual bewitchment. It was just so beautiful and so unexpected, as I said. And it, it could be interpreted in so many different ways. It could be interpreted by, as exploitative or liberating, empowering, very many different ways. So after I spent the six weeks copying it and sort of understanding the brushwork and the method that Gustave Courbet painted, and that was really sort of something that, that empowered me as an artist. The absolute fascination that I would say that, that museum visitors, hundreds and hundreds, pass by every day. There's something more to this painting. And so when I got home, I decided that I was going to just do a bit more research. Because to be honest, I really didn't know that much about Courbet or this painting. It was more or less just a, a very visceral um, reaction that I had. So I went back home and I did a bunch of research. And that bunch of research turned into 10 years of research. First of all, I fell down the rabbit hole of finding out about Gustave Courbet by reading his uh, letters. And that gave me a real idea of who this man was. And I respect him so much on so many different levels. I got so excited about him and about the painting itself and understanding the painting's history. I never knew that it was hidden and secretly moved from, from collector to collector for 150 years. I thought, this, this is a story that has to be told. It just has to be told. So I did more and more research, and I decided finally to write the story of the painting's voyage, the painting's journey across centuries and continents. And that is, was the trigger that I wanted to show the world what this painting was, not just what you get this first impression, oh, it's a shocking painting. There's so much more to this painting. And it's been, you know, vilified on many levels. And I wanted to express what I learned about this painting and how fascinating its journey was and how important it is in the scheme of things. I do absolutely adore this idea of going through time and each of the characters being people that interacted with the painting and their it's like a snapshot onto these lives. It's oh, it's such a good narrative device. You've previously written essays about artwork, uh, so this isn't your first foray into writing per se, but what's the difference for you between writing a fully-fledged novel uh, and the essays that you previously worked on? <laughs> well, I, I'm laughing because 
I would say an essay doesn't take 10 years. <laughs> That's number one. <laughs> True. Um, <laughs> but also it's the development. When you when I write an essay, I have sort of a specific goal in mind and there's a, there's a deadline and a, a number of words, et cetera, et cetera. And I really enjoy writing about those things. But when you're writing a novel, you just become absolutely involved in that time period, in those people. You become part of their lives. They become part of your lives. I mean, I started dreaming about the people I was writing about. It's a very, very involved and very personal and very deep dive into a subject that is so different from an essay. And plus, you're using a lot more of your imagination, even though my my historical fiction is based mostly on fact, you still have to use a lot of your imaginative, creative, you know, license, which in an essay, you really wouldn't do so much. As you mentioned, the research portion, it was important because even though it is a historical fiction, you were coming at it from a place of reality. So what was the research process like? Very enjoyable because I am a history major. So I think without that, I wouldn't have been able to stay the course with reading so many books in French and looking up so many sites on, on, on the internet, corresponding with other authors and corresponding with historians even. Really, for me, it was incredibly satisfying to do the research. But on the other hand, where does it stop? Because if you like researching, you can go on forever. And, and perhaps that was why it took me 10 years. But at the end of the day, when you're writing a novel, you have to cherry pick those interesting highlights of all what you've written so that you keep the reader engaged. So that was part of when you're doing the research to pick out and to draw out what's really important. So you don't want to you know, put everything in there because then you're going to lose your reader. So I had to keep in mind what I wanted, what was my goal. I wanted to in, make the reader enjoy it, be entertaining, and yet be educational at the same time. You might be bringing this to people that would have no other insight into these exactly. historical periods. Yeah, they just, you're kind of the gateway to them going, oh, this is this was so interesting. I need to go away and find out more. Yes, and I've had that response from so many readers that they they thought, is this real? And they kept looking things up and it, and it was in fact real, you know, because there's a lot, it covers 150 years of some of the most interesting and you know, sort of like exciting times in history. So it does cover a lot. And the paintings intersection with some famous people throughout history, that's also an important point of this book. And speaking of the span of time that this picture has existed for, a lot has changed, social constructions, that sort of thing. How do you think that the issue of the female body, the way it's perceived, the the, the social structures that are placed upon it, how do you think that has fluctuated? And do you think that that has been reflected in the way people think about this painting? That's such a good question, Rosie, because um, like I said, the painting elicits very passionate responses. And, and also when you're looking at the political uh, sort of uh, temperature of what's going on, especially in the United States now with you know, rights to a female, to, to a woman's body, this painting I think is as relevant as ever because it's called L'Origine du Monde, The Origin of the World, and you have a close-up crop of a woman's genitals. So it does put on a pedestal in a way a woman, but a real woman, how a woman really looks, because he painted it extremely realistically. 
But I would say if you're looking at how things have changed, I'd go back to art again. I'd go back 25,000 years to the Venus of Willendorf. To those listeners who don't know this, it's a tiny, tiny little uh, clay sculpture that was uh, discovered. And it's of a woman. In our modern eyes, it would be not the most ideal woman. But at the time, she's very heavy with a huge stomach, big hips and large breasts. And at the time, it would have been like the ideal woman because of survival issues. If you were, you know, a skinny little thing, you probably wouldn't have survived what you had to survive 25,000 years ago. And then as you go along in history to the, to the ideal woman that, the, that is found in Greek antiquity, they had an actual ratio for how the, the female body, what the ideal female body was. She was curvaceous, but she was elongated. And then you move on to even things like the corsetry and the foot binding, all these things that, that women have had to go through. And usually it's dictated by men's desires, but also by religious dictates and social constructs and things like that. So the female body has been something that has been used and, and manipulated by external factors. And so when you see this painting of Gustave Courbet, where it's just a woman lounging, she's, you don't see her face. So you don't know, but by her body language, you know that she's very sort of confident in her body. And she's just lying there showing you what she is. I am woman. (laughs) That's so interesting because it's so realistic. You come across it and for a moment you're kind of looking, oh, that's almost a photograph of a woman in this position. So when you interact with the painting, you might not know who the model was. I'm I'm sure that there is evidence to suggest who that model might have been. Do do you know? Yes, yes, and it's in the book, Constance Quignot, who was actually the mistress of the man, the the very exotic uh, Turkish diplomat who commissioned the painting in the first place. And she brought him luck at the gambling tables, and so he wanted her painted. But she was very confident about her, her body. She used to be a dancer. Because there's no head and no arms and no legs, she can, she can be anyone. She can be the ultimate universal woman. And as I was painting it, I have to admit that I totally identified with the painting. She became me and I became her. It's just one of those things that a lot of women feel when they see this painting. That's very interesting. I think it also brings up questions about what is the ideal body and is the ideal body one that is confident in itself? It's such a taboo area to see such a proud vagina. I I know it's through the male gaze, but you do get the feeling that this person is very proud of their vagina and rightly so. And it's nice to see that level of confidence There's been a lot of controversy around this picture. There's been a lot of people, like you said, you have to have an opinion when you look at it. It it defies the fence. It it makes you have an opinion about it. But a lot of those opinions have been about how human is it? And a lot of people have dehumanized her. And a a lot of people are claiming that uh, the artist dehumanized her by removing her face. And I'm not expecting you to answer it fully, but how did you go about in in your work with the painting and writing about the painting, how did you go about rehumanizing and de-vilifying the figure in the painting? A lot of the vilification, admittedly, um, has come from the feminist realm of art criticism, actually. 
And I believe that that's because I wouldn't go so far as to say ignorance, but perhaps lack of information, which I'm so surprised of, because I don't believe after having studied this painting and studied the painter and the conditions under which he painted it, that he meant to uh, demean a woman in any way. He, he was he was a womanizer and he did like women and those were the times. And we have to we have to understand the context of when the painting was painted. But the fact that he wanted to show a woman as she really is, I believe shows a deep respect for women. Because until then, you had this ideal woman, you know, no hair. In fact, the, the, the whole vaginal area was either covered by a hand or, or a fig leaf or, or a fabric or something like that. So he, 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 he just like got, got rid of all that. And he took a taboo subject and he really like, you know, put, put it in your face, so to speak, because it's something that uh, I feel took a lot of courage. But also when he, when you know him and you know that he just wanted to defy all convention and that he was a realist at heart in the way that he painted and in the way that he lived, he could not have painted that in any other way. However, when I was painting the, the, uh, the painting in the museum, a lot of young women were pretty horrified by the painting. They also thought that the hair was uh, rather horrific. And so that just goes to show the entire cultural ideals that we have right now, because they were really horrified and they were young women. And I was expecting them to feel that, you know, this was representing them. But um, they were not that keen on that <laughs> aspect of the painting. I do not wish to judge them. They are on their <laughs> own journey and that's important yeah. for them. I I have a lot of feelings about the enforced nature of body hair removal, especially for women. And I I, I would I would say that I am very glad to see that she has very full pubic hair. And I'm glad that yeah. that was not something she felt that she had to be ashamed of. Well, in, in our modern sensibility, that is something that we don't often come across let's be honest because we see we are so bombarded by you know either pornographic imagery or even in women's magazines you you don't see that sort of aspect but there is a there is a part in the book in which I talk about um what happened in Constantinople and uh this Turkish diplomat that I mentioned before when he got married to a Turkish princess she had to have every single hair plucked out before her wedding night you know, individually plucked out. There was not to be one single hair on her entire body. And that was the, again, the standard of ideal beauty. We go back to that same subject again. Presumably on her body, not on her head. So she still not had on her head. Not on her head. Good point. Not on her head. Oh, <laughs> I have so much frustration. <laughs> oh my goodness. I can see in your face. Yeah. <laughs> oh. oh, but it's good. It's good to talk about this. The social projections onto bodies oh it, it's an, such an important conversation and part of my frustration is knowing that I can't devote hours to this topic <laughs> do you think that this painting deserves its notoriety and in a way is important to the continuation of this discussion when I was there at the museum for six weeks I heard almost everything you could imagine hearing uh, some people said it doesn't belong in a museum but actually, it belongs precisely in a museum because it is an example of one artist's battle against convention. 
and against being told what to do. And right now we 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 all, but especially artists, I think, we just savor the fact that we have this, these freedoms. There are countries where you don't have these freedoms. And he could just fight against that. And it shows that he fought against taboo, that he broke boundaries, and that's why it should be there. So I think it's really relevant, again, in any discussion about either freedom or about freedom of a woman's right to, to, to control her own body. Do you have any advice for aspiring writers, maybe in particular writers that are coming from a different artistic medium like yourself? I see the, the writing about art as sort of like the, the other side of the coin to, to, to my art, to my actual painting. But um, as far as aspiring writers... I'm sure they've heard this before, but don't give up because um, there were times when I certainly did want to give up. It is hard. It is very hard to write a novel, at least for me. I mean, I I know of, of, of authors who are so prolific, they sort of churn out a book a year, but that, that's not me. That's not my style. But um, just stick with it. And also I believed in it and I actually had to fight for it and in its current format. And I did fight for it and I actually, you know, won a lot of prizes. So in the end, I feel like if you know in your gut this is what you want to write and this is the way you want to write it, don't be swayed. That's my, you know, ultimate uh, experience. Thank you so much for speaking to us about this topic. I'm delighted. (laughs) It's been amazing to have you. If people want to hear more from you, where can they go? Well, first of all, I would send them to my um, author site, which is lillianmilgramauthor.com. And there you can read about the book. You can see actually a little video that was made to, you know, like to tease you about the book. If you have any, after this discussion, any doubts about wanting to read the book, you should see this little movie. Tons of uh, reviews on there, also some other writing. But it also has links to all sorts of different places that you can buy the book, whether it's on Amazon or independent bookstores, which I like to support as well. So I I really would like to hear from you. I mean, of course, I want you to read the book. But more importantly, I want to spread the word about this important painting, this fascinating characters that I came across, and just to hear back from readers. I love that. Thank you so much for listening. You can hear more from Liliane on her website. I'll leave a link in the description. If you want to suggest or submit a short story or a subject you'd like us to cover, then contact us through our Facebook page or Twitter. This has been a Yorick Radio production.